So I love moments like that. It's fun. It's fun to see the, the family show up and the friends and everybody celebrate together. And uh, we had an exchange student actually for six years as a part of our family, and her name was Sunny. And we love that name. So and she actually chose it for herself, and we were like, that's a beautiful name. And so, uh, so it's been fun to enjoy this with you this morning. Um, all right, so one of the questions that I think that we as Christians need to be prepared to answer for people is, uh, why do we believe in the Bible? Kind of an important question, I think, don't you? And the reason I say that and the reason I think people ask that is because we come to the world with this book that we call the Bible and we come to the world and we go, okay, so God is a message for humanity and it's in here. It's entirely in here. It is found in this book. And so the world comes to us and says, well, that's nice and that's good to know. And if that is true, that's helpful information. And why do you believe that? And here's what I'm not going to try to do today. I'm not going to try to give you all of the different reasons why we believe in the Bible. In fact, if you're interested in that and hearing more on that, Back in uh, 2018, I did a whole study, and I did a whole message on that. It's called 21 Questions. It was the first message in that study. But I want to give you one, and honestly, it's kind of my favorite, and it's called the internal consistency of the Bible. What do I mean by that? I mean the Bible that we hold in our hands when we hold it in our hands or that we scroll through when we look at it on our phone. Okay, the Bible is not just one book. It's 66 books that we put in one cover. Agreed? 66 books written by more than 40 authors from a whole variety of different backgrounds. We've got fishermen and farmers, and we've got kings, and we have priests, and we have prophets. All of these varied people, and it's written over the course of roughly 1,500 years. Think about that. And the Old Testament part of the Bible, that's the first 39 books. That's the part that is written before the birth and life and suffering and death and burial and resurrection, and don't miss this, ascension of Jesus... Okay, that was written anywhere, depending upon where you're at. Like if you're all the way at the beginning, it's 1,400-ish years before Jesus is born. If you're at the end of the Old Testament, it's roughly 400 years before Jesus is born. In other words, it was completed a long, long time before Jesus is born. And yet, the whole of it speaks of Christ. New Testament, we see that. It's more obvious. Old Testament, it's obvious too if you know what you're looking for. And I don't just mean that the Old Testament speaks of Christ and that it contains over 350 prophecies about the Messiah who would one day come that are all of them precisely and specifically fulfilled by Jesus. That's astounding enough. But what I mean is that I can literally walk you through any character in the Old Testament, just one after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next, story upon story upon story upon story, and I can show you how the pattern of the lives of these people who lived, in some cases, thousands of years before Jesus, matched the pattern of his life. It's astonishing. When you know what you're looking for, you can't help but to see it everywhere you look. You realize, my goodness, this man's life is fulfilled in Jesus, and this woman's life is fulfilled in Jesus, and fulfilled in Jesus, and fulfilled in Jesus, and fulfilled in Jesus, who not only collects up all the stories of these people's lives and reproduces it in his life, but he reproduces it in such a way as to reveal unequivocally that as much as they are alike, they're also different, and that he is the God that they're all believing in and trusting in and living for. It's awesome. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because we come today to the end of the life of this man that we've been studying for weeks now. His name is Elijah. He is a prophet who lived 900 years before Jesus is born. Don't miss that. And he's a phenomenal example of what I'm talking about. All right, let's run through it. You ready? You're familiar with the stories if you've been with us. Elijah was a great prophet. Jesus was a great prophet. You're not impressed yet. Can we agree on that? That one's easy. Let's keep going. 
Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years until he prayed again. And then what happened? This great storm arose off the sea. Don't miss that part. And it covered the land and it poured. What is he doing? He's praying. What is God doing? In response to his prayer, God is controlling the weather. Okay, fast forward to the New Testament. You find Jesus in a lot of places, but one of them is out on the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a great storm. And what does Jesus do? Does he go, oh my goodness, you know, my life is so much like Elijah. What did Elijah do? Oh, Elijah prayed and then God commanded the weather. And it, No, he's the God to whom Elijah prayed. He just speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey. See how it works? So during the famine that was caused by the three and a half years of drought, how did God sustain Elijah? And for that matter, the Sidonian widow and her son that he lived with, he miraculously reproduced and multiplied the food that they had, which was just a little bit. Fast forward to the New Testament, you find Jesus. He's out in this place of deprivation, meaning no food, no town that's really close. Like they can't, you know, call, you know, Uber Eats or something. Like it doesn't work that way, okay? And his disciples are getting nervous. He's like, you know, there are like 20,000 people out here. I know the Bible says 5,000, but that is, and forgive me for this, they only counted the men. They did not count the women and children. And I just want you to know for the record that I would count you, okay? But I can't go back and change the culture. So there's like 20,000 people and the disciples are going, hey man, sun's going down, people are getting hungry, we're going to have a problem here. We've got to find it, you know, send these people home, they need to eat. And Jesus says, no, 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 you feed them. <laughs> like with what? What do you got? You know, we got this kid's lunch, I guess. I mean, you know, is that, and he's like, bring it to me. Does he pray then? And then God then multiplies? No. He does it directly. Feeds everybody. Twelve bushels full of bread left over for each one of his disciples so they wouldn't forget it. It's remarkable. Elijah is provided an upper room by a Sidonian woman. Jesus is provided an upper room in Mark chapter 11. God through Elijah restores the health of the Sidonian woman's child. Jesus in Mark 7 restores the health of a Sidonian woman's child. Elijah spent 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness where he received food from an angel. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness where he received food from an angel. Elijah called Elisha to be his disciple. How? He finds him driving 12 yoke, 12 pairs of oxen out in the field, and he just walks up and says, hey, come with me. Follow me. And Elisha says, all right. So, you know, he does. I mean, that's it. He's just going to go. What does Jesus do for his 12 disciples? He just walks up to Matthew in the tax collecting booth and says, follow me. Matthew just leaves the coins on the table. He's like, that's it. I'm out. I'm following you. Peter, Andrew, James, John, all these guys who had a fishing business. They're like, sorry, dad. You know, like we're out. We're leaving. We're just, we're just going to follow you. You see how this works? You get the idea? It's all pointing to Jesus and pointing to Jesus and pointing to Jesus. And as we come to the end now of the life of Elijah, at least here on this earth, I want you to look for that again, okay? It's going to point to Jesus. But the person I really want you to look at is Elisha, his protege, his disciple, this guy that he's been pouring into, the one that has been chosen by God to come alongside of him. And then ultimately, when he's taken away, and that's what we're going to see, to take over for him. And the reason that I want you to focus on Elisha is because if you're a Christian, then Elisha is a picture of you. 
And he faced in his day, relative to his master, who was Elijah, the same thing that we face in our day, relative to our master, who is infinitely greater, and his name is Jesus. And what is that? It's a question. And what's the question? It's, will you take up the identity of your master? Setting your own aside. And then by the power of his spirit, use the life that he's given to you to do what? To advance his mission above all others above everything else. So we pick up the study today in 2 Kings 2, beginning of verse 1. It says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, which I will grant you is a very unusual way to get to heaven, okay? But that matches Christ. He's ascending to heaven. Little different. And here's the deal. Elijah knows this is coming. Like God has revealed to him, hey, this is what's going to happen next. Elisha knows it's coming. God has revealed to him, hey, this is what's going to happen next. These communities of prophets that they see on their journey toward that particular happening all know. It's like the Holy Spirit has showed up. He's tipped everybody off. Elijah's in his final days. This is it. He's going to heaven by a whirlwind. And so what do these guys do? They basically take a farewell tour. It's remarkable. It's like, you know, when Michael Jordan retired from the NBA for the final time. You know, what, what happened? Like everywhere he went, every place, he, everybody understood, this is it. If you're going to see MJ play in the flesh, like ever again, buy a ticket to the game. Sold out stadiums all over the country. For obvious reasons, he's awesome. He's one of the greatest living legends, period. You know, he's one of the greatest athletes ever. He is, forgive me, and I'm a fan of his, nothing compared to Elijah but not in the press of earth. You know, what is, again, is the question for us today? So the question is, will you take up the identity of your master, in our case, Jesus, and then by the power of his spirit, use the life that he's given to advance his mission? Part of the answer lies in what headlines you value most. Do you value the headlines of earth or do you value the headlines of heaven? Do you value the history books of earth or do you value the history books of heaven? Because one of them lasts and it lasts forever. So these guys start their farewell tour and they begin at Gilgal and they go from Gilgal to Bethel, then they go from Bethel to Jericho, then they go from Jericho to the Jordan River, they cross over the Jordan River, and then the whirlwind thing happens. We'll get to it in a minute. I know you're excited. Okay, so that's where we're going. But before they leave each of these places, what does Elijah do? Because it's fascinating. He comes to his protege and he says, look, at Gilgal, before we leave for Bethel, here's the deal. I think you should abandon me, and I think that you should just go back to the life that you had, and I think that you should just take back up again the mission you had. I think you should keep your identity. I think you should stay here. And that had to be tempting, because as we saw when we looked at the call of Elisha, again, he's, he's driving 12 pair of oxen. You know, what I didn't say is that his farm was on the Jordan River. This guy comes from a fabulously wealthy family. He has wealth, he has comfort, he has ease, he has prestige, he has reputation, he has everything that anybody who's interested in the headlines of earth could possibly ask for in his day. And the life of Elijah is not an easy one. Think through his life, man, it's... It's disquieting. Like, I mean, what are we going to eat? Like, where am I going to sleep? And I'm on the run from the king, and it's dangerous, and it's deprivation, and it's all of it's lonely. It's devastating at times. It is a hard 
life, comparatively speaking, though it is a life of power and joy and fellowship with God. So there is that. Elisha, I think you should just stay. He's like, I'm not staying, I'm going with you. Then they they get down to Bethel. He says again, no, 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 I think you should stay. No, really, like second to last chance, okay? And he's like, no, 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 I'm going with you. And then they get down to Jericho, and he's like, okay, final chance. Like, if you want out, buddy, this is your moment. This is your turn back moment. Stay here. He's like, no, 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 I'm going with you. And like, why would he pour into this guy, Elijah, and, and just pour into him and pour into him? He knows that he's the God-ordained replacement. For why is he trying to get rid of Elisha? He's not. He's testing Elisha. He's tempting Elisha. He is really saying, look, man, we're about to cross the Jordan. And after that, there's no turning back for you. So do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Will you abandon me? No. No. No, I'm going to stay with you to the end. And so they get down to the Jordan River. And it says in verse 8, Then Elijah took his cloak. Now why is that significant? Because the cloaks in those days were an outer garment. They had undergarments. You know, you know, we have underwear, they had undergarments, okay? And they would wear them underneath the cloak, but the cloak was not, you know, something like this shirt. I got this shirt at J. Crew. The reason I know that is I get everything at J. Crew, okay? That's just simple, and then it shows up at my house, and I know the sizes. So, but the reality about this shirt is probably 10,000 other guys have this shirt. And here's the cool thing about being a guy. It's a little bit different for a woman. When I see somebody wearing the same shirt as me, I'm like, dude, you look great today, you know, like... We're, we're, we're bumping it out, you know, like, man, sharp, really sharp, okay? When you're a woman, it's a different experience. But, but the cloak in those days was uniquely made for the person. It was unique to Elijah, and it represented him. Like, you could pick Elijah out in a crowd from a distance, not because you could see his facial features too far away. You recognized the cloak, and everybody knew the cloak. It represented him. It represented his mission. It was his identity. He takes it off, and he rolls it up, and then he grabs it, and he struck the water with it, and the water was parted to one side and to the other until the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed over, Elijah then said to Elisha, okay, you've survived the three temptations. You have passed my three tests, so what do you want me to do for you because I'm about to leave? He says, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha, who's been thinking about this, apparently said, well... Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What does he mean by that? Because it almost sounds, you know, a little weird. Like, is is there ego involved in this? Is he saying, look, I want to be twice as powerful as you were, you know, and then I'll have twice the farewell tour, you know? It's not at all what he's saying. He's humbled by the farewell tour, by the ministry and the power that this man has exhibited of God. He's going, listen, Elijah, you are the spiritual father of these households of prophets that we visited at Bethel and that we visited at Jericho on the farewell tour. And I'm the eldest son in the family. And as the eldest son, when you're gone, and that's about to happen, okay, so when you're gone, I take over. Like, I have to step into your sandals and take over the leadership of the whole household. And in Israel, the eldest son is entitled to a double portion of the inheritance and of the estate of the father. I'm asking for that. I want a double portion of the Spirit of God. I need that if I'm going to do this. And Elijah in verse 10, 
said, you have asked a hard thing. Why? Because the Spirit is the Lord's. And in fact, the Spirit is the Lord. He's like, listen, only God can grant this request. But if he does, you're going to know it. And here's the test. Here's how you'll know. He says, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, that is to say, if God gives you the spiritual insight and ability to actually see what's happening when I disappear from your side, okay, If that happens, then it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me and you're just walking along and I'm here one second and I'm gone the next and you're like, whoa, where did you go? What happened? How did this occur? Then it will not be so. And so we read that as they went on and talked, the next word is awesome, it's behold. What is that? It's a word of sight. It means look. So what does Elisha see? It says, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he wanted Elijah to know that he saw it, and so he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and then he saw him no more. And then what did he do next? It says that he took hold of his own clothes. What is that a reference to? Well, it's not a reference to his undergarments. It's a reference to his cloak, the one uniquely made for him, the one that speaks of him, the one that he's been picked out of a crowd by from a distance, the one that represents himself and his mission and his life. And what does he do with it? He destroys it. He tears it in two and he lets it drop to the ground. And in replacement for that, he took up the cloak of Elijah, representing him and his mission. The one that had fallen from Elijah when he ascended to heaven. And then he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan and he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he rolled it up, I'm sure. He knew the process. He had seen this. And then he struck the water with it saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? In other words, I saw it happen. Have you given me the spirit and power? Did I get the double blessing? And it says that when he had struck the water, he received the answer of heaven, for the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And then Elisha went over. And look, once again, you see how Elijah is a picture of Jesus who defies death and ascends to heaven. But you also see how Jesus is infinitely greater. Why? Because Elijah does not endure death and ascend to heaven. Jesus endures death, defeats it in resurrection, and then ascends to heaven. But he's greater as well because... Elijah only passed on his identity. He only passed on his mission to somebody who passed a bunch of tests. He had to pass this test, and then he had to pass the second test, and then he had to pass the third test. And then after that, they then crossed the Jordan, and yes, okay, here's my identity. Here's my mission. What does Jesus do? He looks at me and you, notwithstanding all of our failures, and trust me, he knows all of them. And he says, in effect, look, my blood is so powerful. I am so much infinitely greater than Elijah that even though you have failed test upon test upon test and you've given in to temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation, even though you have done that, my blood is powerful enough to forgive you for the whole of it, past, present, and future, to redeem the whole of it, past, present, and future, to bring good out of the whole of it, past, present, and future. And my spirit is so great that I can empower you failures notwithstanding, to do amazing, incredible things for me, which is, in fact, our calling. Our calling is to lay hold of our cloaks, our identities, 
and to tear them in two in light of the privilege that we have of taking upon ourselves the identity of Jesus and then in the power of his spirit serving him. And we see that with Peter, I think most obviously, and frankly, I think we're supposed to see this in Peter. Why? Because the apostle Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times on the night of his betrayal. When he needed Peter the most, Peter failed him the most. And what does Jesus do? On the backside of the resurrection, he meets with Peter on the Sea of Galilee, and he says, look, uh, Peter, i got three questions for you, so you should be seeing something in the number. Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he says, well, that's fantastic, because I suffered and died so that through faith in me you can go to heaven. Why don't we just do that now? Come on, because that's the goal of this whole thing called Christianity. It's so that you can live your life and know that at the end of your life, you'll be okay. You know, on the other side of it, you'll get to go to heaven, and why don't we just go ahead and do that? That's why I came, it's why I suffered, it's why, you know, all the whole resurrection and all this, let's go. No, he says, I've got a mission for you in the earth then, Pete, so I want you to feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Now he's looking around. He's like, did you guys hear? Because this is twice, you know. Lord, you know that I love you. Well, it's fantastic. Let's get out of here. Let's go to heaven. No. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Like, now Peter's hurt. You know, he's like, do you want me to write it down? I, are you not convinced? Do you think I'm not telling you the truth? Like, yes, I love you. That's fantastic, Pete. Let's get out of here because my goal is get you to heaven. That's the plan. That's the goal. That's the whole agenda. That's where I want you. That's feed my sheep. I've got a mission for you here. You know, when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, all right, you guys want to know, so here's the deal. So when you pray, say this, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, I believe in Jesus, take me to heaven when I die. He says, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, wait for it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is not the goal. Earth is the goal. Earth is the goal. And yes, when the mission of Jesus by his spirit through you in this period of time, and it's short, called your life is over, he will then take you to heaven. And that is wonderful, and that is amazing. And yes, Christ suffered and died and rose again from the dead and ascended to have that for you, to win that for you. True. But in between now and then, what's the question? Will you take your identity, tear it apart, and let it fall to the ground? And take up the identity of your master, and there is no greater master, and his name is Jesus. And then by the power of his spirit, use the little life that you've been given in this life to advance his mission above all other missions. That's it. So here's what I want you to wrestle with today, okay? What are you doing to advance the mission of Jesus right now? Like if I gave you a pen and a paper, you'd go, oh, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. You'd go, I don't need the paper, thank you. You're like, right? Because nothing. Okay, Jesus suffered and died for that, and he wants you to do something. Maybe you had all kind of something going on and quarantine came along and, you know, I mean, you're just tired, right? You just want to sit on the couch and eat ice cream. I understand. I've done a lot of that. I get that. But it's time to get back in the game, guys. Our time here is short and we have been given an identity that is unparalleled. 
It is the identity of Christ. Think of the scandal of that. He is so great, he entrusts his identity to us. Remarkable. And he's so great that he uses even us. No matter what happens in life. He can use me. He can use you. So what are you doing? And what can you do next? Wrestle with that, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that that there is one who is greater than Elijah, that his name is Jesus and he has not hidden himself from us, but he has made himself known. He has given us an infallible word that is supernatural in its complete and entire orientation. It is a word from another world about a God who so loves that he's given his son to suffer and die, the innocent one, that we, the guilty, might be proclaimed free and forgiven and filled with his spirit and given the privilege of taking up his identity and of being used. Not a better story anywhere to be found. Not a better purpose not a better life. Lord, lead us on that life. Give us faith for that life, whatever it may be. If it contains deprivation, there is blessing for forever. If it is lonely, Lord, you've given us yourself, your word, your people, and you've given us an eternity to enjoy all of those people as well forever and ever. God, we have the privilege of knowing and experiencing you. And here's when it happens most, when we surrender our lives to you and we do what Jesus said to do, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily. That is to say, to tear our identity apart every morning, to take on the identity of Jesus and then to follow him wherever he leads us, one step at a time. Make us faithful followers that Jesus might be lifted up, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.